thanks for coming out tonight. It's great to see so many people here. As you've heard, this is one of a series of forums being held around the state. And uh, uh, the first ones, the early ones, you know, focused early this year on the lack of a state budget, as you heard. Since then, the state has finally gotten a budget, but that, uh, as you've heard, does not mean all the state's problems are solved. As uh, Western Illinois University President Jack Thomas has said before and might say again tonight, we're not out of the woods yet. And that's the basic uh, premise behind this evening's discussion. We want to talk about the damage done to this region and how we might recover. What are the challenges ahead? And so let's uh, bring our panelists up here. They are the aforementioned Jack Thomas, President of Western Illinois University. Christopher Merritt, Director of the Illinois Institute for Rural Affairs. Aaron Clark Benedict, Counselor with Lutheran Social Services of Illinois. And Kenny Boyd, President and CEO of McDonough District Hospital. We're going to uh, give each panelist about uh, five minutes to talk about the impact of the state budget impasse. And after that, we will open it up for questions. Uh, what we would really like is to hear from you. That's why you're here tonight. What are your questions? What are your concerns as we try to recover, not just from the two-year state budget impasse, but from the state financial problems that predate the impasse? Again, what are your questions and concerns about the challenges ahead? I do ask if you have a question, you come up to the microphone that's right up here so we can all hear you. And uh, with that, uh, let's hear from our panelists. Let's start with uh, Dr. Jack Thomas, president of Western Illinois University. Thank you, Rich, and good afternoon, good evening to all of you. I'm delighted to be here, and as I was saying to Kenny Board earlier, Kenny Board and I were very popular until two years ago <laughs> when we had to make all of these the difficult decisions uh, regarding the budget. But here in talking about Western Illinois University, we, as you all know, I'm sure you've been reading in the, in the paper and hearing all about us, I did a state of the university address uh, two weeks ago and talking about where uh, we have been, uh, where we are right now and where we're going. As many of you know, because of the budget impasse, we went two years without receiving uh, a full state appropriated budget. And the Board of Trustees cha uh, charged me with making sure that we, I kept the university viable, along with my leadership team, kept keeping the university viable, as well as making sure that we uh, continue to provide a quality and well-rounded education. That the, because of the budget impasse, that it did not affect the quality of the education that we provide at the university. And we feel that we did that. We had to do a number of things. The, this, the budget impasse has affected us in a number of ways. Uh, we had to, uh, we cut programs. Uh, we reduced programs as well as we had uh, furloughs, we had salary reductions. Uh, as uh, the leadership team administrators, we were the first to take the salary reduction uh, be, uh, because we wanted to make sure that we set the example uh, and we're still on furlough. But there are people who, took, uh, who had to be laid off and uh, as Mike Inman stated, uh, 
so goes Western, so goes Macomb and West Central Illinois. And whatever happens at our institution, it affects the entire uh, West Central Illinois, and particularly Macomb. And we had to make some very difficult and very challenging and unpopular decisions uh, because of the budget impasse. So we did the things that we needed to do to get through the challenges. Uh, prior to the uh, budget impasse, we had a reserve in place and we utilized all of the funding that we had that we had in terms of the reserves that we had in place. Since 2002, the state does not give us our budget up front like other states in which I, uh, I have worked. They give it to us sporadically throughout the year. And during the times when the state did not come through, we utilized our reserve to float the state, so to speak. And once that reserve was gone because we did not get a state appropriation, then it made it necessary for us to make reductions. Uh, it affected, it, it created a crisis of confidence uh, for higher education in our state and particularly for our colleges and universities. Uh, that crisis of confidence uh, in turn affected our enrollment. Uh, people kept calling and asking, uh, are you going to be open? And my statement to everybody is that our university has been here 117 years, and we will be here 117 more years and beyond. One thing that happened I, I thought was kind of humorous, uh, Lorraine Epperson called me one day, and she said, Jack, will you fax me uh, a statement saying the university is going to be open? And I'm like... Are you kidding? She said, no, I'm serious, Jack. And I said, okay. So I faxed it to her because there was somebody trying to buy a home in the area and would not buy if we hadn't stated that we were going to be open. That's just how serious it was. I used, one of the, I used that as part of my testimony with the legislators, and I think that got to them at some point. Uh, but the, the thing that we did is to, uh, we reduced, uh, uh, made reductions, one thing that we did the, the second, the first year is that we reduced tuition by 3% uh, as a university because we wanted to make sure that education is still affordable. As a public institution, we take pride in the fact that we provide access to those students who meet our standards, but as well as we try to make sure that education is affordable. So that first year, our enrollment was only down by 3.5%, uh, which is about eight students for first-time freshmen last year because of what we did in uh, the reduction that we put in place. This year, because the crisis of confidence has gone on so long and we didn't get uh, funding until much later, and that's in July, that has affected our enrollment. We don't know the exact uh, uh, numbers that we're going to have right now because we're waiting until 10th day uh, where uh, the enrollment is confirmed on that time and then that will be this Friday and we'll let individuals know we'll put that information out by uh, next Tuesday. Um, so we're not giving any numbers right now but the crisis of confidence is still there and it's still affecting us. The state of Illinois is the second largest exporter of students from our state. Uh, second behind uh, New Jersey, and many students uh, are leaving the state, going elsewhere because of that crisis of confidence that's affecting all of us in higher education, and also the number of high school students that has dwindled uh, as well. And then you have all of these uh, institutions coming from other states into Illinois to recruit students. For example, we lost one of our top uh, recruiters 
to the University of, of, of uh, out there, what is it, Oregon, the University of Oregon. Um, they gave him, gave him more money. We tried to keep him. We couldn't. Uh, and he still he can stay right there in in Chicago and recruit uh, as one of their recruiters. So we have hundreds of institutions coming to our state to recruit our students, which makes it more competitive for us as well. In spite of all of that, uh, as I stated in my State of the University address, we've done well in U.S. News and World Report as well as the Princeton Review. GI Jobs Magazine, Military Time Edge Magazine. So we're still, we have still done well in terms of the rankings, but just think of how far we could have gone in and how much more we could have done had we had the appropriate state funding uh, in place. As I stated in my uh, State of the University address, we're doing more corporate fundraising because we feel that we can no longer depend on our state to come through in a timely manner. So we're going to have to do some things a little different from what we have done in the past. We just want to make sure that uh, we're never in that same predicament where we're totally depending on the state. But the crisis of confidence is still there. Uh, as Rich said, we're not out of the woods yet because this has gone on so long that uh, we had to make sure that we did some things uh, uh, to offset the budget. Um, we're still bringing people back to the university, um, as well as the uh, and looking more so at uh, the faculty and staff, as well as our students. It's affected the number of faculty and staff who apply for the positions that are vacant. So it's kind of difficult for us uh, still. But in the midst of all of that, it has helped us to be more uh, focusing more on our strategic plan and being more innovative and creative. So we're investing in those programs where we see growth, uh, potential for growth, and we're going to invest in specific areas uh, as well. We've started what we call the President's Executive Institute, where we've had various summits, the Mayor's Summit. We're working with the high schools as well as the community colleges um, and reaching out to our community as well. And the community has really, really worked well with the university. You've really supported your university, and we're very proud of that. I know I have so much more to say, but I'm going to stop right there because I know I have other individuals on this panel, and I'll I'll be delighted to take the questions that you may have after we hear from them. Absolutely. Okay. Let's uh, hear next from uh, Christopher Merritt, director of the Illinois Institute for Rural Affairs. That's great. Thank you, Rich, and uh, good evening, everyone. Um, I work for Jack, but I'm not going to uh, uh, repeat um, what he's saying. I want to focus instead on um, sort of the economic conditions across the region and um, you know, it's very easy for us to see things in a glass half empty sort of way. Uh, and, and, and so I will briefly talk about that, but then also talk about some ways that maybe we can move forward. Uh, you know, clearly the state budget impasse has had statewide uh, implications, uh, but also interestingly, there's been geographical, uh, demographic, and industrial sectors where there's been wide variations. And I think it's those variations which allowed the budget impasse to go on for as long as it did because some people were affected dramatically by it, other people not so much, and so there wasn't as much of a, of a vocal outcry about it until, uh, until things went on as long as they did. Um, thinking about some of the ways that the state budget impasse affected the economy of our state, 
the mere fact of the uncertainty, I mean, uh, uh, business investment uh, is really about risk management and, and, and understanding what your investment landscape is, and uncertainty by definition is, is a risky uh, environment. And so we know that uh, industrial investment was probably dissuaded from coming to Illinois in the past two years just because of the uncertainty. We know that consumer spending was also affected by the budget uncertainty. So uh, investment in homes, uh, as Jack was mentioning, people are very concerned, not just in a college town, but across the state, about making those kinds of sizable investments when you're not sure what the economic environment is about. And then also out-migration. And it's not just high school students going to other colleges. It's also professionals leaving the state. Businesses, yes, but certainly healthcare professionals who are tired of waiting for as long as they have to be reimbursed. And uh, between 2015 and 2016, for example, census uh, estimates suggest that at least 38,000 people left in net from the state. So we're losing people, not just students, but also permanently we're losing uh, people who are just tired of the uncertainty. Uh, there's also economic penalties of not having a budget. So. Most of us know about the bond rating downgrades. What does that mean? Well, that means essentially that the cost of borrowing in the future will be more, which means uh, capital investments, whether it's universities, whether it's freeways, a whole range of things uh, will be more expensive. One could imagine projects on the drawing board now may be, uh, have to be modified or in fact shelved entirely because cost estimates are no longer uh, realistic because it costs more to borrow. Uh, there's also penalties for late payments. We heard earlier that we're approaching $15 billion worth of, of late payments, and estimates now suggest that there's an $800 million penalty for those late payments. Who's paying for that? Of course, we're paying for that. Uh, and there's also lost investment revenues. Uh, state Treasury Frerix suggests that there's at least $31 million of lost investment revenue to the state. So there's ways that we're not even sure, I mean, we're not even uh, aware of until you sort of drill down into various reports. Um, there's also, I would, I'm going to call this an articulation of the budget impasse on larger macroeconomic trends. Um, it's been a decade since the start of the so-called Great Recession. And, uh, of course, this was the, the largest economic downturn uh, since the Second World, or since the Great Depression of the 1930s. Uh, the Federal Reserve suggests that the Great Recession ended in 2009, but the state of Illinois was actually, uh, it was a lagging state in terms of its recovery. Uh, as a state, we are now, we've uh, generated jobs more than what we had back in 2007. However, uh, downstate rural Illinois, we've still not fully recovered from the Great Recession, and there's a lot of evidence to suggest that the state budget impasse is one of the factors that's caused, um, um, caused this uh, slow recovery. And, of course, uh, the uh, nagging problem of depopulation in our region has probably been exacerbated by the state budget impacts. Uh, I'm not going to say too much about human services other than to note that uh, the state spends about $3.1 billion direct spending to state services. And that generates, in total, about $4.5 billion. And when we delay funding to those services, uh, that imply or that means layoffs, it means reductions to services, which I'm not going to speak about, but just the economic impact. It's a tremendous, uh, human services are a tremendous economic engine in the state, and when we're cutting services to that, it actually has impacts locally, because there's, there's uh, human service offices in basically every county. And then there's the opportunity cost of not providing those services. So when we cut funding to state rehab services, uh, somebody who has substance abuse problems, who may be on the road to recovery, 
doesn't have access to those services, then maybe uh, their life path takes a different trajectory and, and becomes a less productive citizen. Uh, cuts to youth anti-recidivism programs, for example. Uh, students once destined for productive lives may end up going to prison. So there's a range of sort of unintended consequences to this kind of a budget impasse that you know can, can literally uh, ruin lives. Um, and then maybe the final two points I'll make is that uh, just to expand a little bit on Jack's comments about the economic development impacts of the budget impasse. And I could make a dis distinction between the macro scale impacts and maybe the micro scale impacts. And so the macro scale, the large scale impacts, what we're really seeing in many ways is a disinvestment in higher education, which is really a disinvestment in the workforce, right? And our workforce is what's going to make a prosperous Illinois in the future. And to the extent that we are disinvesting from our future workforce, that means we're not as competitive in the global economy. This is a disinvestment in our future. At the micro scale, obviously fewer students, as Jack was mentioning, also fewer faculty members. And if I sort of list the college towns one after another, you begin to get a sense of the scale that, yes, this is a local issue, this disinvestment in higher education, but it's a regional and statewide issue. So think about Carbondale, Charleston, Macomb, DeKalb, Bonmouth, Galesburg, Peoria, Springfield, Greenville, Jacksonville, Moline, Eureka, Edwardsville, Carlinville, Decatur, Quincy, Rockford. These are all either public or private universities that receive either state appropriations or MAP grant dollars. And all of those were negatively affected that saw student declines, that saw faculty layoffs, and saw a negative economic impact as a result of the state budget. Uh, one last point is uh, we haven't really talked about, or maybe we won't talk about, but I want to mention the economic and environmental impacts of the state budget impasse. Uh, there's renewable energy policy program that there's a line in the state budget, there's zero money in it right now, and 33 conservation police lost their jobs. So uh, the extent of the budget impasse uh, is pervasive, regionally variable, but nonetheless profound. And my final point would be, I sure hope we don't have to do this again. Erin Clark-Benedict is a counselor with Lutheran Social Services of Illinois. Uh, thank you. Thank you all for being here tonight. Um, I think that the biggest thing with the budget impasse of the last two years is this is, in some ways, something we've always faced within social services. LSSI partners with the state to provide services in the local communities that we serve. And 18 months ago, we had to close 30 programs, eliminate 750 positions, and we were owed $6 million at that time in unpaid bills, which resulted in 4,700 people losing their services. Um, and those programs that were closed were the programs that were not receiving the payments, and our board had to make choices about what could be sustained and what could not. Um, was almost a triage approach of we're either going to lose everything or we're going to lose some things. Um, it was de devastating to lay off those staff and impact that economy because of the impact to the economy. And it's devastating to the people who lost their services as they wondered where they would get those services. Um, with our, our, I think our contracts, we received an overall 5% budget decrease, which is on top of the decrease that we received the last time we had a state budget, on top of the decrease that we received before that. Um, and we, we continue to work and adapt. It's just that our pro, like in the time I've worked with LSSI, the programs I work with, we start having more rules about how long a family can be served, how 
um, what we can do, what we can't do. And we still provide those services, it's just it gets a lot harder to do our job, to do the work that needs to be done. Um, I'm, I'm a therapist and I work on the ground, so I have, in the, the course of my career, in the last 11 years, I've seen services become harder to find. Um, linkage is very is difficult anyway when you're talking about medical cards and when we have doctors leaving the state. Um, it's not just that a doctor won't accept the Medicaid payment, it's that they're not there. Um, our children, children with serious psychiatric issues, um, we're waiting hours and hours just to find a bed in a hospital that will take them so that child is safe that night um, and gets the services that they, and treatment that they need. Um, and I've had families who struggle because their child needs more services than can be provided in the community setting, and we can't find a we can't find that bed, that placement for that child because the waiting lists are so long. Because there's just the the services have become harder and harder to find. Um, and it's not just LSSI. Every agency we work with is strapped and struggling, and it's our clients that end up pay the, paying the price. Um, as far as the programs that we had to close, the, we bear the cost of opening programs and the capital of renting a building and buying all the office equipment and chairs and everything. Um, and we bear the cost of closing those programs, not the state. So we don't get, it's not, we can't just go back in <laughs> and start those things up. Um, we can grow where we are able to grow. Uh, LSSI is celebrating its 150th anniversary this year, so we will continue to provide services where we can and partner with the state how we can to do the best we can do to um, bring healing justice and wholeness to our communities. In the course of doing business, we're always owed money because that's how billing cycles work. We work around what we can and we continue to partner to provide those services on behalf of the state. We have been able to stabilize and continue to provide services in the communities where we are. Um, we currently have, oh, I missed that, sorry. We're serving 64,000 people a year in 66 sites throughout the state. Um, but we know that it's always gonna be, you know, it, it's always the what's next, what comes next fiscal year cycle. Human services are the, often the first to get cut and we know we'll, we will continue to face further cuts and struggles. And when we look at cutting services, it's the prevention and diversion programs that go first. And those are the programs that usually save us the money in the long run. It's the, I feel like it's an ebb and flip, that, that thing, I don't know, what's it called? Pendulum. The pendulum. <laughs> I was thinking of that thing where like the balls hit the other balls. Um, <laughs> you know, we, we see a problem, we say, oh, this is a huge crisis, we have, to, we have to do something about this, we have to do something about this. So we figure out something to do and it works. And then it's like, oh, oh, we're running out of money. Why are we spending all this money on this thing over here? We don't have a problem with that. We don't have a problem with that because we are doing something that worked. So I guess I think the biggest thing is we, we, continue, to, we continue to blaze on, do more with less, um, just like all the other partners in our services, and we continue to rework and restructure so that we can do what we can do. Um, I think if you look at the course of social services history, and I'm a huge nerd, so I like to look at those things. Things have changed so much since Jane Addams started Hull House 100 years ago. And we adapt and, and we always are learning new things that are more effective. And we'll continue to do that. Thanks.
Kenny Boyd is president and CEO of McDonough District Hospital. Thank you, and thank you guys for coming out this evening. Um, un not unlike the representatives from the other organizations at the table, we too have felt the, at MDH, felt the impact of the ongoing state budget crisis. And a lot like Jack spoke to about difficult decisions that had to be made at the university, we too had to make those decisions. Um, as we saw the continued delay in payments from the state, we had to decide how do we conserve cash because we were actually becoming a bank for the state of Illinois, loaning them money. Um, and as being a district hospital, we were doing that gratis. So we were not recipients of the interest on the money that we were floating on their behalf. So actually our patients were loaning the state of Illinois um, money by um, getting health care services. Um, part of that, if you look back to 2015, the end of our physical year, which we had lined with the state of Illinois on, at the end of 2015, in bills over 60 days old, so 61 days and older, the state owed us just, and I use that term now, back then it was just $3.2 million. And they were taking on average, and this is Medicaid and the three main state health insurance plans that are in our area, um, which until recently were Health Alliance, HealthLink, and Cigna. So between those four, and then Medicaid, of course, between those four, they owed us the $3.2 million, and it was taking them about 161 and a half days to pay a bill. So if we provided a service to a state employee and or a Medicaid patient, taking about 161 and a half days to pay a bill. Now, that's a really long time. If you own a private business and I come in and buy something from you and I say, I want to come back in five and a half months and pay you for this, um, I'd probably get to meet sheriff or city police officers. <laughs> Not the case if you're a health care provider in the state. Fast forward to July 1st, 2017. The state celebrated the fact they passed a budget. Yay. Um, and I, I say that with about that much true enthusiasm. Over two years, the amount of money the state owed us went up almost eight times. The state now owes us $24.3 million in bills over 60 days old, and is taking them on average 382 and a quarter days to pay us for taking care of a patient, whether that be Medicaid or state employees that are covered under one of the state employee health insurance plans um, that are administered inside of our service area. Think about that for a minute if you run a business. Um, if I came and got something from you, kept it for over a year before I came and paid you for it. Um, you know, we're looking at almost 13 months for them to pay us for providing services. Some are worse than that. The worst example is Cigna. Oh, it takes them 671.6 days to pay us for taking care of a patient. So with that said, what does all that mean? That, was, that occurred because of the state budget impasse, but the theme for tonight is the challenges ahead. The challenges ahead is the state passed a budget. But if you look inside the budget, there's no money to pay the past due bills. There's authorization for the governor to issue up to $6 billion in bonds to start to pay down a portion of the back due bills. That's approximately 40% of the back due bills. From what I can gather from my research, there's no money in the budget to pay back the bonds if they borrow the bonds. Kind of a problem. Uh, I don't know, just sitting from a budgetary standpoint, if I told the board we're going to borrow money, but we don't have any money in the budget to pay it, um, probably be a career limiting opportunity. 
So what does all that mean? I, I love Jack's statement, and he's used this multiple times, so I cannot take and will not take credit for it. It's a crisis of confidence. Um, the crisis of confidence in the region is real. Um, Matt, their uh, VP of administration, I believe, had told me that the budget impact, the negative impact from the changes that Western had to make in order to survive in one year cost our regional economy $10 million in economic activity. When you have individuals from the largest employers such as Western begin to move, less students come into town, there are fewer people in the community which impacts businesses which take care of people and hence you have to change. Um, we've had to make a lot of difficult decisions at the hospital in the past, especially the past 12 months many of them very unpopular, um, which as Jack said brought the two of us to the forefront of some really nice internet forums and other opportunities, but the, <laughs> the fact of the matter is that's our job. If we don't make those decisions to help keep the organizations alive, who's going to? And then when they fail, whose fault will it be? And so those are, and the decisions we've had to make, just as an example, um, for this fiscal year, we started July the 1st, we pulled 100,000 man-hours out of the organization. That's fi almost 50 FTEs, and at an average salary of $50,000 a year, we pulled out over $2.5 million in payroll from the organization. If you apply an economic multiplier by that, we've negatively impacted the regional economy, but we had to. And why did, why did we have to make those changes? Fewer people in our region because of fewer economic opportunities. It was fewer demand for services. means we have to adjust our organizations. We've had to renegotiate contracts. Just finished up meeting with the group helping us on non-labor expense reductions today. And we're looking at reductions of about $1.9 million in just normal operating expenses to be able to bring down the operating costs to the organization to continue to provide care. What else does that mean for the future of our community? I'll go back to Jack's statement, crisis of confidence. Rural communities is real, are, is, are really difficult to recruit providers to. Macomb's a great area, but it's really hard to sell a community when they say, hey, what about this budget problem that everybody in the world knows about? Are you going to be able to pay me if I come to work for you? The board has done a great job of supporting physician recruitment over the past six years of my tenure, and we've recruited over 20 physicians to the organization in the past six years, and over 20 advanced practice providers, nurse practitioners, and PAs. But as we start to renew their contracts, their question to me is, can you afford to keep me? And it's not a statement of them gloating about um, what they're compensated, it's really a question of can you afford to keep me because the state's not paying you. There's not been one medical staff meeting in the past two years that we haven't had a discussion most of my time with the medical staff being spent on what's going to happen to us. Are we going to be able to take care of patients? Can we continue to do this? And so we've had to balance that with making sure we provide access. So we've had to eliminate services, combine services, privatize services, outsource services. We have to make those unpopular, uncomfortable decisions to ensure that we can do what we're supposed to do, which is provide access to quality health care. Our staff does a great job, much like the staff at the university. Our staff has achieved state and national quality awards. 
um, over the past six years, while at the same time fighting with all this other stuff we should not have to fight with. Um, so looking long term, my biggest concern for access to health care in West Central Illinois is the ability to recruit and retain quality providers, which will provide us some modicum of stability as far as knowing you're going to be able to access care. And the same thing goes with like you know, the request from Lorraine to Jack. The question is one of the other big driving factors in a rural economy is access to health care. It's difficult to have economic development if you don't have access to quality health care. We've got a great team of providers and an amazing group of people out at MDH. But if the state doesn't come to a long-term plan to really, really solve its problems, then the future, that makes, and I know I sound like Debbie Downer, but <laughs> it's the fact of the matter is, it is concerning. That's what keeps me up at night. And at the same time, I have to go to the board and tell them we have to continue to, like Jack said, we have to continue to focus on our strategic plan. We have to invest in health care. We have to invest in access. We have to remain competitive. We have to do those things so we're balancing the fact that we have to control cost while investing in ourselves to continue to improve the quality of care we provide and access to our um, communities. So it, uh, for, besides being unpopular the past two years, also haven't got a whole lot of sleep. And so with that, I will turn it over to our moderator. All right. Thank you to our panelists for uh, some interesting and insightful and at times, uh, I guess, alarming information that we've heard here this evening. Now this is your opportunity. You've heard what they have to say. Uh, again, we have a microphone up here. If you have a question, a comment, a concern based on what you've heard so far this evening, we would uh, encourage you to come on up to the microphone and express that. And if not, I will uh, get things rolling here by asking perhaps, um, and, and a few of you may have already addressed this, but uh, what do you think is your institution's or the region's biggest challenge in the years ahead? And how might you address that challenge? I'll take it. Sure. <laughs> Never afraid to give an opinion. Um, <laughs> That's why we invited you here tonight. <laughs> You know, I, I believe not just our regions, but our state's biggest concern over the coming years is predictability. I think any of the organizations up here, Jack and I had many conversations over the past two years as we had difficult decisions, many of them mirroring each other just in different ways. If we only knew what to expect, we could plan. Not understanding what's coming down the road hearing for two years, oh, we should have one next month, we should have one in this special section, we should have one at the end of the year, we should have one by Thanksgiving, we, there's no way we'll go past Christmas. It's really hard to plan. It's really hard to plan if you don't. And then um, somebody had mentioned the fact that there's a gubernatorial election next November. We have a budget until June 30 of 2018. There's a lot of questions. Are we going to have one for July 1st of 2018? There's a lot of people that say, I wouldn't be surprised if you don't. That does not help the situation. So my opinion, and as a leader of the organization, my biggest concern is long-term predictability to start to reinstate some stability inside of our region. 
and I agree with uh, what Kenny has said as well. It's the uncertainty of the state. Even when we got the funding, the comptroller's office mentioned that you're still going to have to be very conservative, which we already knew that. Uh, we are always very uh, fiscally conservative. Uh, not knowing is the the challenge. We have a strategic plan in place. Um, because of the budget impasse, we had to come up with a strategic plan supplement to deal with what we were faced with at that time. And so now we want to move forward with the strategic plan, but we're very cautious uh, because we don't know what the future holds. And we still, I'm told, we still have another year and we're not sure whether or not we're going to get a state-appropriated state uh, budget. So it's the uncertainty. And for example, we also have uh, the uh, our capital projects. All of that has been put on hold. Everybody was so happy when uh, the previous governor uh, approved and gave set funding aside for the Center for the Performing Arts, the entire region. And then they eventually put that on hold. All of the presidents, my predecessors, for 50 years have been trying to get that Center for the Performing Arts. And then now all of that's on hold. So we, it's because of what has happened, and it's the uncertainty. Erin, did you want to add anything? Um, I think it just, the uncertainty is huge. And then it does become the how do you plan? How do you, what are you, what are you working with July 1? Because I know there's been years we've gone real close and then it's still a, what are we, okay, what happens, what happens? And that, and that once we do have that budget, there's still cuts, there's still reductions, and that, and now you're scrambling. Chris, did you want to add anything? Oh, just uh, maybe uh, sort of thinking forward, um, the extent to which maybe in previous years we've thought more uh, as individual entities, uh, maybe going forward we need to think more collaboratively, sort of not just community resilience, but maybe regional resilience. Um, one of the things that um, the, uh, the WIU has done is uh, in, in terms of its community outreach, um, I think so, WIU I think is sort of always being conscious of its regional presence and I think it's tried to increase that, um, open a second small business development center up in the Quad Cities and an international trade center. So I think there's this idea that we can't rely as much as we would like to on Springfield or even Washington DC. So anything going forward, uh, you know, you know, part of being creating a more predictable environment is controlling more of your destiny, and so uh, I think that that's you know part of I think the plan going forward is is trying to figure out how do we become less reliant on you know state capital and and and, and Washington D.C. And, and trying to have more control over our destiny. And, and I'll just also want to add, no point intended. This is what Illinois Institute for Rural Affairs is one of the service uh, agencies that we kept we kept rather than cutting it because of the impact that we have on West Central Illinois and all that the Illinois Institute, Illinois Institute for Rural Affairs does for the community. So that was one of the things. We have a half a billion dollar impact, economic impact on West Central Illinois. So we wanted to make sure that we keep certain programs that are investing in and actually helping uh, in the community and what Chris Merritt does. But that is a leaner program today than it was a few years ago, correct? Well, we did make some uh, cuts, but we did not cut the entire programs, which is, you know, a plus for Western and a plus for West Central Illinois. Bill? Thank you. Um, my name is Bill Jacobs. I'm retired. 
And I, uh, I, I, I listen to Tri-State's public radio, and I'm a member of the AARP. And I, uh, I have um, a comment, an observation, and a suggestion. My comment is um, um, going back to an article that was in the front page of the McDonough Voice uh, three, four weeks ago. It was from you, Dr. Thomas. And it had all those bullet points of all the cuts that have been made. And it really struck me that, yeah, those are a lot of cuts. And those were cuts to people. And, you know, we're talking about how we're able to be here today and we're, we're surviving. And there's a lot of people that made a lot of sacrifices. And, you know, we owe them. And Kenny, too, you were talking about, we, we owe a debt of gratitude to people who've retired early, moved up, you know. Okay, I, I made my point. My observation is, um, and, and part of this, uh, we were hearing from Dr. Merritt, um, I, I too once was, a, I still think of myself as a geographer, and um, there is a general decline of, uh, of rural America. Um, that's not something that we're, that's not our fault here in West Central Illinois. We're, we're a reflection of what is going on throughout the nation, not just even Illinois. And um, one of the, uh, the, the, the realities of that decline in rural America is an a aging of the population <laughs> and, and, and an increase in, in rural poverty. And uh, um, so th that's a reality that's out there. And, and certainly the, the financial problems that we've had here have played right into that reality. Okay, so my suggestion then is um, I, I think we need greater um, collaborations between especially Western Illinois University and the community and, and if not the region. Um, collaboration, partnerships, where um, we're, we're doing more. Uh, well, the first thing I think of, because this is my technology, I'm firmly grounded in the 20th century, but we've got to have people grounded in 21st century technology. That means young people coming to Macomb and learning and working and finding employment opportunities. We need to develop job opportunities with technology here in, uh, at Western Illinois University. Um, we, uh, uh, and, and then in recognition of the fact that there, there is a growing um, segment of population that, that live in poverty, and of course, okay, I was the director of the Housing Authority and I kind of used to witness that firsthand, but I'm also married to a teacher and she wit witnesses that firsthand in the classroom. And, uh, and there are certainly are already collaborations and partnerships, but we need to step it up. We need to do more. And, 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 and overall, to be more of a welcoming community because, you know, there's a lot of us who are here that uh, came here because, uh, and stayed here because of Western Illinois University. Um, well, we need to keep having young people come in to Macomb and 
McDonough County in West Central Illinois and supporting us uh, as we become elders. Thank you. Thanks. Did anyone, uh, Rich, can I? Can did I any of you care to respond to his uh, yeah. suggestion, comment, and recommendation? Yeah, Bill makes some really great comments, um, and it might not. It might be not just about bringing more young people here. There's also an issue of keeping people here, right? And we're not talking about handcuffing kids, right? I mean, we 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 would want them. We would want them to be here because there's opportunities. And uh, so I want to give a shout out to an initiative that, uh, that MADECO is engaged in. Um, a number of people, the CEO program, the Creating Entrepreneurial Opportunities, which is a high school entrepreneurship program, right? So it's about trying to give high schoolers the idea that, uh, that they need to go away to college and stay away in Chicago or wherever that might be, but there in fact might be entrepreneurial opportunities locally. Uh, it's not to say that they don't go away to college, but you know, thinking about business succession planning, there's a lot of uh, entrepreneurs, business owners locally. At one point, they may want to sell their business. Where will that next generation of entrepreneurs come from? And I think having high school entrepreneurship training, I think, will be an important, small part, but an important part of a strategy. Um, there's another strategy I, I think that would be good for not just locally but regional uh, college recruitment. Uh, there's a number of initiatives called Promise Programs, right, where local communities provide tuition support for the residents of their community. So if we're thinking about WIU, wouldn't it be fabulous if we could figure out a way as a community, as a region, to have you know part of the tuition uh, reimbursement through whether it's a community foundation or some other strategy. So I'm really talking about sort of bootstrapping initiatives, which is part of a, uh, a local resiliency initiative where, uh, and, and this is related to the idea of the community foundation. Um, you might be aware that uh, we're sort of going through the largest transfer of wealth in the history of humanity actually right now. Baby boomers are AARP types, right? We're, we're getting up in age. We've, we've been very prosperous in a rural area. It's farmers, right, who are getting up in age and uh, their kids are no longer in the area, right? They live in Chicago, they live in Texas. And when these successful husband and wives who farmed successfully owned businesses, when they pass on, all that wealth created locally will be leaving the state. And so the role for community foundations is to capture some of that wealth, keep it here and reinvest it here, which could be about, again, uh, subsidizing tuition, uh, revolving loan funds, trying to figure out new ways to take wealth created here and investing it here. So I made a short story long, Bill, but it's, there really does need to be, it, and I agree that there needs to be concrete strategies for taking existing wealth, and, and it's, it's really about asset development, right? Because we have a lot of underutilized assets in a region. And uh, I think we're getting better at using those assets, but I, in, you know, the, the pressure of the state budget impasse it means that I think we, we need to become even better at, at identifying the leaders, local young leaders, students, expertise that can be, uh, become the sort of the economic and political leaders of tomorrow. I will remind you the uh, microphone is open here. We have a wonderful panel, a chance for you to pick their brains. Um, and while we wait for somebody else to step up to the mic, Kenny, you touched on this a little bit, you know, as we're heading into an election year, and a few of these organizations up here, you have lobbyists, you have people in Springfield. Uh, what are you hearing? Is, is there a possibility that uh, we will not have a state budget until after the election for governor? 
I went first last time, Jack. <laughs> well, that is always a possibility. Uh, we know what has happened in the past, uh, over the past two years, uh, particularly the, the first year when the election was going on, and um, that's a possibility, and we see it as, as a possible challenge for us as well. And this, the, again, we go back to the uncertainty. Who knows? I might just offer what I tell my kiddos sometimes is we plan for the worst and hope for the best. I, I, I think that's all we can do. That might be the new state motto. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> only if I get credit for it. <laughs> So, so how do we how do we perhaps plan for the worst? The challenges ahead. What what are you doing to prepare for the possibility that we may go through something like this again? Well, I'll, I'll start. Um, as you all know, we started what we call the President's Executive Institute, and we have, uh, as the gentleman mentioned, in terms of partnerships, we spent the entire year. Uh, in various communities, started here in Macomb with the Mayor's Summit, where we brought all of the local mayors around to the university. Some of them had never even been to the university. Um, and we did the same thing with the uh, superintendents and principals, as well as the high school guidance counselor. We're partnering with them. Uh, we did the same thing with business and industry. We're continuing to do that. We went to, we had uh, summits here in Macomb, as well as in Quincy, Peoria, um, Moline, and other surrounding, Havana, and other surrounding areas. And we found out a lot of different things that we should be doing and how we can partner with the school system. And then we're looking at some of the, uh, the public schools. Uh, many of them, they didn't have funding themselves, so they wanted to know how the university could help how we used to bring students to the, how they used to bring students to the university. And in one instance, we sent a bus out and we brought students to the campus. Um, in Galesburg, uh, individuals wanted us to have a recruitment fair for teachers, uh, teacher education. We started as a teacher school. And with teacher education, we put it on with uh, Erskine Smith and his associate. They put this on within a month's time. And we had over 30, inch, 30 schools there with lots of students being recruited to try to keep the students uh, in the, uh, the, the, uh, the 16-county area rather than them going off to other states. So we're doing some things in terms of partnering, uh, which I think uh, will help in this uh, President's Executive Institute. And also, doing corporate fundraising, which is, a, is what we're doing, uh, more corporate fundraising. We have some, but we're doing more now. You all know Becky Paulson used to be uh, with the what organization she used to be with here, but she's uh, with the Chamber of Commerce. She is a, a development officer in the College of Business and Technology. So now she's going to continue to report, report to the Vice President for um, Advancement in Public Services, Brad Bainter, but with a line to me to work specifically on corporate fundraising. Uh, so that's one thing that we're doing in terms of trying to offset the uh, budget and also we have to continue to be very uh, fiscally uh, uh, responsible and, 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 and conservative uh, and uh, waiting to see what the future holds. But in the meantime, we still have to invest in those growth areas. We still want to grow our enrollment. Right now, 
uh, we'll, uh, under 10,000. Our main goal right now during these challenges to be stabilized at least 10,000 students during this time, but eventually we want to continue to grow. And we're doing some things in terms of our uh, admissions office and our uh, uh, recruitment office, so some additional things there. Did anyone else want to uh, tackle that question? As far as what the organ we uh, MDH is doing to prepare still for the uncertainty, some of the things I mentioned earlier, the financial um, responsibilities, the extra financial um, accountability we put in place, so the organization will stay there. We're going to continue to be vigilant about um, productivity and man hours and non-labor expenses to ensure we control those. Because much like WIU. Over the past 12 months, with the continued delay in payments from the state, we too had to dip into our reserves. Um, fortunately, uh, we did not deplete our reserves, um, but we did have to dip into those. This year, part of our budget is to start to replenish those um, as possible. But as with Jack, we continue to look at how do we move forward with an organization, because if you stop moving forward, you begin to move backwards. So we continue to look at how we improve ourselves. The board challenges leadership on an annual basis with the scorecard that focuses on um, patient safety, patient experience, um, avoidance of harm to patients, and financial indicators, um, which challenges us with uh, benchmarking, our, benchmarking ourselves against industry um, standards. So the top quartile or top decile where appropriate so that patients that come to us can rest assured that they're getting the same quality of care that they're getting anywhere else. A lot of times people think bigger is better, so I have to go to A, a B, or C to have something done. When we have exceptionally well-trained physicians and pro providers at our organizations that do that, we're partnering with our community main employers. We've been working with the school system now for three years on employee wellness. We've been working with NTN Bauer on um, uh, healthcare issues that their employees need. We're working with about four other um, community partners, really reaching out to the employers in the community saying, what are you needing as a, from your healthcare provider? What do you need us to do to help you control your healthcare costs so you're more successful, so the community's more successful, so we're more successful? So really, at the same time of balancing the always um, difficult conversations of controlling expenses, we're also looking at opportunities to continue to improve the organization um, and move us forward. Um, and then partnerships um, throughout and to the comments earlier, um, we've always had a good relationship with the university um, and with the community colleges. So we are partners in um, nursing programs at the community colleges, at pharmacy programs. We now take, we have for the first time had residents, uh, fourth year med students come and do rotation with us, and we are working now to bring residents into the community, which will be um, on a long-term regular basis, um, which will be the first time we've done that um, to enhance recruitment, retention, and um, the quality of care in the area. So a multitude of, of items. Any other thoughts from the panel? If not, the microphone is all yours. My name is Lynn Rubin. I used to live in Macomb. I moved out about five years ago. It was spring, Chicago and then Springfield. Uh, <clears throat> I lived in Roseville for 22 years. Before that, I lived in Macomb for 15 years. I taught at Western. I uh, came in 1977, which was the peak year for Western. 
and I think about half of people in here probably came around the same time. Uh, that was the largest faculty hiring in the whole history of the university. We long for those times. Uh, <laughs> and uh, yes, you do, and uh, maybe it's a population growth problem, but uh, in the, the 1980s, I started my, I was a librarian, and the computer took over the library. Sciences took over the university library. And I became a computer nerd. And I also taught instructional technology because the whole department changed its name five times in 10 years. <laughs> so I would like to say back to the issue of technology, I thought that once we got the internet going that people, young people who had children would move out of the cities where there's all this crime and all the traffic and move to a place like Roseville or Macomb where it's safe where everything's easy to get to. I mean, just a, my thought, being born in Chicago, why wouldn't people move out of there to be in a place like Macomb? And now it does take a little getting used to, maybe a year or so, because you keep looking for all the people that you, you know. But there's so much technology now that people can just talk to each other face to face. Uh, a Facebook, I Facebook like 100 people from Macomb every day. I just don't get it. Do you have any thoughts on that? Why aren't the people coming here and seeing the beautifulness of it? Perhaps we're not doing a good job in telling our story and what Macomb has to offer. Uh, I feel that even at, at, our, at the university, <clears throat> one thing that we're doing, our PR person, Darcy Schimberger, who's sitting here, we're coming up with different ways of how we're marketing our university and particularly our academic programs. Our students come to our university because of our academic programs and because of the world-class education that we, we, we provide. Many of our students come from lower socioeconomic backgrounds. Many of them are first-generation college students. And we feel that Western is a, is, as a public institution, we provide access to those students who meet our standards as well as making education more affordable. I feel that it's the marketing. Uh, as you mentioned, Macomb has a lot to offer as well, but who knows what Macomb has to offer? Are we doing a, and I'm not trying to get in the mayor's place right here, but, <laughs> but how, how do we market even with the mom and pops? There's a lot here in Macomb. Uh, the hospital, the university, uh, community college, just a number of things here but uh, perhaps we have to come together and, and, and market this place better than what we've done. I believe we have another question. If nobody else wants to address that, we'll take another question. Uh, Tim Roberts, I live here in Macomb. I teach at Western. Um, I want to pick up on something that Dr. Merritt mentioned about uh, trying to get people to, younger people to stay. Um, I think that there's ways or there's a need to uh, bring um, teachers into the area. I'll, I'll, I'll um, just cite three examples. We, I've just been chatting with people in the community. Uh, friends said who teaches at West Prairie said that they're desperate for uh, people who can substitute teach in different areas. Uh, my, our high school biology teacher is about to go on maternity leave for three months and the school can't find a, a biology teacher to teach in, uh, in her place. 
Another friend teaches special ed and uh, says that it's very, very difficult to recruit special ed teachers because of, I believe, because of um, regulatory issues and, and licensing issues, particularly in Illinois, particularly in Illinois, perhaps particularly, you know, in this region. Uh, so if there's ways perhaps to think about that and to incentivize uh, talented younger people to come as, as educators or as, um, as tutors, uh, perhaps to forgive debts that they might uh, incur money that's loaned to them by the state, by the university, by the local community. They agree to work here locally and over time uh, the education becomes free. Just to pick up on the, the anecd uh, anecdotally something that the young lady said right before me, we were in Chicago at a theater and uh, just chatting with people next to us and we told them we were from Macomb and they looked at me and said, well, the, the, the woman looked at me and she, she said, tell me something, is it really like Green Acres? Uh, how did you respond? I said, yes, of course. <laughs> Come see for yourself. Well, I think one thing in terms of uh, with, with teachers, getting uh, more teachers here, uh, we're going to have to do, have more competitive salaries. And uh, that's a feel when you, when we hear somebody say that, well, we, I'm going into teacher education, we're like, really great, you know, we're, we're excited. Um, but one thing that we're going to have to address in this state and across the country, not just in the state, but across the country, has to do with uh, uh, those salaries and making those salaries more competitive. We have a revenue problem in Illinois. Uh, revenue's not what it was when I was young. Don't have the sales tax, the uh, income tax, motor fuel tax that we used to when there were more people making more money. So I think maybe one thing we could do for revenue is something that I'm probably going to be booed for terribly, tax retiree income. I'm retired. I receive state services. I don't pay state income tax. I should pay state income tax. I did when I was working, but I'm still enjoying the services. I see a guy shaking his head. Sure, let somebody else pay for it. Okay, well, I also think there ought to be a graduated tax on retirees. Some people have the money. You know, let them help out. I want to help out with my state. This is a fine state. Now, some people would say, well, you tax retirees, people will move. And many of them have. Well, let them go. What good are they? I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't say that. But I'm going to stay because I love this state. And I owe it something. Anyone uh, care to respond to that? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> All yours. Hi, my name's Heather McMeekin. Um, this is my home. I came here from Northern Illinois back in 86 to come to school here. Western has been, um, I mean, I, I love Macomb. I have a one minute commute. Um, you can always tell when students are back, we have a traffic backup of three cars at one of our stop signs. Um, 
you know, it's really, we, we enjoy a very high quality of life for being such a rural area. I would also like to say how wonderful it is that after two years of no budget, we finally have a town hall about this problem in our city. We have a representative and a senator, and yet we've never had a town hall about this. And I'm going to take them to task for that, because these are problems that are really hurting us all. Let's talk about the interconnectedness. I worked at MDH. I, I loved that job. I was a paramedic for almost 10 years there. And I also taught out there at Western. Now I work as a webmaster. And it's a really good gig. And I love the job that we do. But let's talk about the quality of life. Back in the 90s, when I was a paramedic, we had nice roads with safe shoulders. So if you had car trouble or you needed to pull over in a storm, you could pull over and be reasonably assured that you're not going to go off and get stuck or you're not going to roll over. Now if someone makes a little bit of a mistake because our roads in this state are so degraded, there is no margin for error and we see a lot more rollovers and people dying because our shoulders are poor. Even getting into the city then, our sidewalks have degraded because we don't get the matching dollars needed because we can't match those dollars to get those big grants from our federal government and back into our state. Also, we've had to resort to blacktop. I don't blame our local leaders for that because the roads need to be fixed at least somewhat. But now our square is going to blacktop. And Wigwam Hollow has now has blacktop. Why is that a problem? That's a problem for people with pets who like to walk them without their pets getting burned, right, on their feet. Also, having blacktop, which is dark, absorbs all that heat. And on the square, that means that the sidewalks in vicinity during the summer are going to be 10 to 20 degrees hotter. And all the buildings adjacent then are going to cost more in trying to cool their businesses as a result. That interconnected problem directly relates to Springfield. And I do feel like our governor treats us like a neglectful parent. We have serious needs. We, I, I'm happy to pay taxes. I want to support social services. I feel like it is my obligation. Um, they say a budget is a moral document. We are paying money in taxes and what what are we getting back for the most vulnerable in our community, in our state? Not nearly enough. I decided to stay here and cast my lot in with Macomb. I'm raising my children here. I went to school last night for back to school, and I heard two of my child's teachers say, this book is so old, I don't use it anymore. Um, and the online part of it doesn't even work because it's so old. So they're having to spend more time coming up with unique materials to make up for that lack, which increases their stress and their burnout, right? And then we end up losing good teachers after two or three years because the stress is too much. And as far as not having a performing arts center, my gosh, how many letters did we send? How many petitions did we sign? How many meetings have people gone to? That's not too much to ask, you would think. So I don't really have much of a comment other than there's an election coming up and our elections get decided by a very small minority of people who go in there and show up to the polls. We need everybody to register to vote. 
offer to give somebody else a ride or babysit for them so they can go vote, and let's send a message to our dysfunctional parents in Springfield that they may like to forget about how important we are, but we provide a great quality of life here. And if we can't raise our children here in schools that are well-funded, where they get a good education and then can come for higher ed and then stay here, what are we doing this for? Uh, I am Jim Dolmeyer, and uh, uh, I, we live in Avon, and my wife is retired from Western. Uh, first of all, uh, I thank all of you for the hard work you've been doing these last years to keep your organizations functional, and we all owe you a debt of gratitude. Thank you. Um, I think my thoughts or uh, comments are probably not directed at you guys, but keying off what this lady just said, that what got us here, I think, are two things. One is term limits. I think we need to have term limits. And I think we need to look at how our political districts are drawn. Uh, because they are so gerrymandered that people can get into <coughs> office and keep that, you know, they've got great job security. They've got better job security than you guys do. <laughs> and you know what I'm saying. Yeah, okay. So I'm done. So thank you. Uh, as we approach the end of our uh, event this evening, I'm wondering if the panelists could uh, share some thoughts on what the people in the audience, what the citizens can do to help you, to help the community, to help the region uh, deal with the challenges ahead, help you address the challenges ahead. So my opinion, what the general population can and should do is what was spoke of earlier, regardless of your political affiliation, the party that you're tied to, it's imperative to communicate with your elected officials your concerns about the impact of the uncertainty that the last two years have brought upon our, not just our region, but our state as a whole. Um, and what does that mean long term? What does that mean long term um, for not just Macomb or McDonough County or West Central Illinois, but Illinois as a whole? How are we going to recover? How long will it take to recover? What are the negative impacts going to be? Each of us see it from a different point of view. Each of us have different experiences. Um, but I spend, and my board chair can attest to this, I spend a lot of time in Springfield and Washington, D.C. I do that because decisions that legislators make and or don't make impact my organization's ability to care for our patients one way or the other. And if I am not involved in the process, I tell the board all the time, and pardon the, well, I'll use a different term. If I'm not involved in the process, I can't gripe about it later. I don't have a right to complain about it if I don't participate in the process. You don't have to be argumentative. You don't have to be nasty. 
You don't have to be hateful. You don't have to be rude. You don't have to be disrespectful. Actually, none of that ever works, by the way, as somebody who's been on the receiving end of that the past few months. That doesn't work. We don't respect you for There's no respect for your opinion at that point in time. But communicate that to your elected officials at the city, state, local, and federal level so that they understand that impact and make sure that you come with some hard data, not just, I don't like you, that was stupid. Make sure that you come, that was a stupid decision. Make sure that you come with him with hard facts about what that impact is. Because if we don't do it, who's going to? Nobody. What people are going to do is, like Jack pointed out, they're going to come, they're going to take our high school graduates and bring them to out-of-state institutions and grow their prosperity. They're going to re compete against me for the recruitment of physicians and providers and take those, either the ones I'm trying to recruit or the ones that I have, um, and that we have in town, and take those. So it's imperative that we are involved in the process because we all have got skin in the game, but if the elected officials don't hear you, they don't know. So that is my last words of, I don't know if I want to call them wisdom, but that's my last piece of advice. I'll jump in on that. Um, one of my side not related to my job yet completely impacts my job, things that I've done in my time with LSSI is participate in our advocacy stuff through the church because we are a faith-based institution. Um, and I've done a lot of work with people on telling their story because me as a provider, president of a hospital can go and talk about why this is important, but when someone goes and said, says to their elected official, whether it's their state or federal representatives or their mayor, this is important because of this. And it affects my mother, sister, daughter, child, etc. That you make it personal and you put a face. Because my under, I did my undergrad internship in D.C. in a congressional office. And I read a lot of form letters, and I could tell exactly when certain groups had sent out their blasts <laughs> about call your elected official because we got the same thing over and over and over again with a bunch of different signatures. But when you call and you tell your story and you tell them why this is important to you, and you start to build, a, especially if you build a relationship with that person to where they, you're able to sit down and you don't have to do the formalities and you just say, what is going on? This is getting ridiculous. And you start to have that more personal conversation. They trust you, they hear you, and it becomes real. And it doesn't just become the other side of a vote or a piece of paper that comes across their desk. It's a face, it's a name, and it means something. And it's a lot harder to make decisions that impact the face that you know than the face that you don't. Um. I guess I have three points. The first, uh, to follow up on the issue of term limits, uh, you know, some people think, uh, and there's a like, strong advocacy uh, in the past two years that we should have uh, term limits in Illinois. And that's actually a more complicated question than you would think. Uh, there's been some research uh, by somebody, I think, in this room, in fact, um, suggesting that, uh, for example, that term limited uh, congressmen are more likely to spend money as they're going out the door. So in fact, it can it, it can worsen state budgets, for example. So it's a it's an interesting and maybe more complex issue than you might think. Um, a second thing is 
many of the challenges that we're talking about here tonight, I think, um, have really sort of predated the state budget impasse, and I think in some ways what the state budget impasse has done is it's really shone a light on some of the things that maybe we didn't want to look look at or maybe we weren't looking at as much as we should. So uh, I'm thinking, for example, of, of, of you know, totally biased, you know, transparency here. You know, I'm interested in funding for higher education, but we know uh, that for well over a decade, and you know, I think our, you know, as a WIU, you know, its peak funding was back in 2002 or 2003. And so uh, those kinds of investments in public goods, uh, I think we should be, you know, it, it turns out if you want something good, you have to pay for it. That's sort of the basic thing, is in, uh, which goes to the point about paying taxes. Um, and, and so uh, thinking about these ongoing trends, whether it's depopulation in our region or looking at investment in public goods like higher education or K-12 education, um, you know, sort of need to think about that maybe more holistically. And I would also say from a rural development perspective, what's going on in Washington is very troubling to me uh, that uh, we might want to, you know, uh, for any range of region, reasons thinking about what's going on in Washington, but um, federal government programs that are targeted on counties that would be in downstate Illinois, I think you should be focusing on that as well as the state budget impasse. And then I'm not quite sure what impact this has, but let me back up and say, there was a time when I thought Walmart was the worst thing in the world for small towns. Uh, I railed against Walmart, and then Amazon came along. And now I love Walmart <laughs> because, because Walmart, if it's not in a TIF district at least, is paying property taxes. They're brick and mortar. And so if you need to buy uh, something online, uh, maybe my plea to you is to buy it online with a store that at least has a brick and mortar presence. So don't buy your books at Amazon, buy them at Barnes and Noble. I agree with what uh, Kenny Board has stated. You have to let your voices be heard and you have to advocate uh, for what you want. Let your voices be heard and let your concerns be known to the legislators. Uh, and at Western, what we did during the year, our students, uh, SGA, they were very uh, uh, active as well as our faculty and our staff. We spent lots of time in Springfield. And uh, as Kenny said, uh, it's about building relationships. We have great relationships with the legislators, although we, all don't, we don't always agree. Uh, my legislative liaison person, Jeanette Malifa, talks to me on a daily basis about different things that are going on with our university and how we can get the support. Uh, and it's not about attacking individuals. Uh, and as Kenny said, those are the most of the time people dismiss you when you do that. Uh, and I don't think anybody has been more angry than I have during these past two years. And I've let it be known that we're a downstate institution. And you have to support us just like you do everybody else and bring programs here. Uh, I sit on the Illinois Board of Higher Education. I'm the only public president who sits on the Illinois Board of Higher Ed. On the 19th of September, we're having the Illinois Board of Higher Ed at Western Illinois University. The meeting is going to be at our university. We, they haven't met in over a decade at Western. And so come out and, and see what they have to say at, at the Illinois Board of Higher Education. But that's just one thing. We're doing a number of things in bringing and letting people know that we are a downstate institution and uh, we matter here in, in, in the downstate, uh, in, in, this, in this region. And 
we have to get out and we have to build those partnerships uh, with those legislators and to let them know uh, where we are and what we're doing. It's not over. You know, I encourage you all to continue to do that. And I know you have, some of you have, and I encourage you to continue to do that. And that's the only way that we're going to get what we need here in uh, uh, West Central Illinois. And I want to thank all of you for your support. I, I really do. Thank you for your support, and thank you for being here. Please thank our panelists for being here. Thanks also to AARP, NPR Illinois, Illinois Issues, and Spoon River College. Thanks, too, to Heather Norman, standing in the back of the room, our outreach coordinator for Tri-States Public Radio, for uh, the role she played in putting together this forum, along with Development Director Sharon Faust and General Manager Jonathan All. I'm Rich Egger of Tri-States Public Radio. Thank you for attending and participating in tonight's event. Have a good night. <laughs>